0: This is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, and I am here with Sherry Brendan, who is the author of Breakpoint, Two Minnesota Athletes and Their Road to Title IX. Sherry, thanks for being here with me
1: today. Oh, I'm delighted to share a little talk about my book.
0: Could you talk a little bit about how this book came to be, why you wanted to write about these two women and um, what they were doing in the 1970s in high school?
1: So the first prompt uh, that really set me in motion is the fact that one of these women is my sister, my older sister. And uh, my sister Peg had um, in high school had gone to court and obtained the opportunity to play tennis. And I knew that. I was a seventh grader at the time. I watched some of it happen, but I was a little confused about what had gone on. Um, And as the years went on and the decades went on, I could see that uh, my sister had definitely had an impact for my own athletic experience uh, at my high school. But then I started to note that other people – really didn't understand what was going on. And there were a lot of details that were foggy for me. So I asked my sister if I could look into her story and, and, and tell it. She had um, high school kids asking to do history projects about her. And um, so I knew that there was questions, but she really wasn't being written about and had not been written about. So, I launched this project and realized that her lawsuit involved another high school girl, uh, Tony St. Pierre who grew up in Hopkins where I actually lived, Hopkins, Minnesota in the Hopkins school district. And um, so I set out to interview people about the story and I I have skills as a, a research librarian for law firms and use that to look into the legal record and what was troubling to me is that I read about male athletes all the time. And not only do I see what they do in real time in the newspapers, but the stories of old reverberate back to me. So I keep hearing about Bud Grant and my high school classmates who went on to pro sports and they come back over and over and I don't hear these same stories about female athletes and their achievements and their accomplishments. And it felt like there was just this dearth that there was a, a gap that needed to be filled. And um, so I also looked into a lot of microfilm. Uh, it turns out that um, the particular span of years that my sister was playing tennis was a time when the archives really hadn't developed a digital log of these newspapers. And so I was like spooling through all of these things to see the articles and tennis, um, isn't known for a lot of media coverage anyway. And the fact that it was my sister didn't necessarily, uh, cause sports writers to rush to cover it. But I found, um, a historical record. And similarly, um, Tony St. Pierre is an endurance athlete and she was a cross country runner and cross country skier. And there again, I found articles and stories from sports writers. So I was able to piece together both the legal record as well as the sort of uh, public accounts in, in newspapers, and then um, individuals experience with it as coaches and teammates and, um, and and Peggy uh, Peggy's experience as well. Um, Tony St Pierre unfortunately passed away before I was ever able to interview her, but I sp- got to speak to her family members and teammates and coaches and uh, and kind of piece together what I realized was a groundbreaking, uh, precedent-setting lawsuit that enabled these two girls to participate in high school athletics on a boys team when there were no interscholastic girls teams for them and their case, because it was appealed and um, continued to be challenged by the Minnesota state high school league, went to the eighth circuit court of appeals. And that court then not only upheld that decision, um, allowing them to play, but also echoed back an interpretation of a newly passed law, Title IX, and Title IX um, really, in essence, is just 37 words about forbidding discrimination, gender discrimination, um, or uh, her, you know, gender harassment in education for federally funded programs. It doesn't mention sport or athletics, but after reviewing the um, case, uh, the A Circuit determined that we need to clarify that that education does include athletics and that that activity did have the protection of Title IX.
0: So when you, you you know, you talked about this, this whole, um, because I'd love to delve a little deeper into all the challenges you have in putting all this together, right? Because you say even now it's hard to find things on female athletes, right? And it's female high school athletes who go into college. So what was that like to have to, you had, um, and you talk about it in the book, you have this sort of scrapbook from your sister, um, some home movies. um. But what was that like, like? Can you talk a little bit about that? Like just trying to piece all this together?
1: Yeah, I so wished my sister had kept a diary, but that that wasn't to be, and neither did I have that for Tony. Um, and 50 years is just a very long time um, for all sorts of people's memories. So um, looking like at newspaper articles, um, it was very striking to me uh, to sort of see the attitude uh, that came out, that sports writers would get kind of snarky or uh, they were sort of flippant sometimes about what was going on. Um, And the coverage, um, it was just very unfamiliar. So uh, sometimes you would have sort of news people talking about athletics and you could tell it wasn't something they were all that familiar. And sometimes you had sports people who really didn't want to deal with sort of the politics of Keeping a girl out of sport, um, but uh, it the, the, that was part of it was to just sort of hear those attitudes and and that within the in the print, um, the legal record actually proved to be quite fascinating because I was able to get this court transcript, five hundred pages of word for word testimony, and um, at first I was a kind of pushing it away because I thought no one wants to wade through this. Uh, But as I talked to my sister about it, she goes, Sherry, you know, this is really something you should, you should uh, mine. And so um, I, I spent more time at first, I was just sort of summarizing a few key arguments and I started to read through it and tried to create the sense of the, testimony as it occurred on each of the three days. And I realized that it was so much more meaningful and also um, detailed to really appreciate how things that we would sort of find appalling now were systematically raised up as problems, that these girls had bodies that did not match up to boys. And so they wouldn't, they shouldn't be on the same court, they shouldn't compete in the same events, and it would be better for girls to wait to participate in sport until someday there might be a better program. But um, in the meantime, it would be quite disastrous to put them in competition with boys.
0: And so, what's what sort of situate? I'd love for you to like sort of situate us in this time period too. And I think Minnesota. And high school athletics in Minnesota was probably very similar uh, to other states, right? So it's 1972, and you talk a bit about just how drastically different athletics are for girls and for boys um, competing and playing. So can you talk a little bit about um, what was even available to young women at this time in high school, or really not available to them,
1: versus um, male athletes? Yeah, so in 1972, I was in seventh grade. And when I was in seventh grade, I would take home economics and I would learn to sew an apron. I would not be able to take shop class and build a birdhouse. So uh, athletics, it, it fell under that same umbrella. There were very clear tracks about what girls were expected to do and restrictions about what girls could do and boys had their own path. And that plays out, um, a- and there were actually uh, hearings going on at this time around Title IX to discuss this kind of thing, that girls were not encouraged or not allowed to take advanced science and mathematics classes, that girls couldn't take certain vocational programs. As they approached college, they couldn't uh, – they would uh, – not be um, admitted in the same numbers. There would be quotas limiting the number of girls in graduate schools. Women had a very difficult time getting uh, entrance into engineering, into law school, med school, all those things. So um, it's not surprising that under the um, umbrella of athletics in the educational system, there was similarly very restricted opportunities for girls. Um, There was sort of a mentality that we're not sure if it's really something we want in young girls and women to be competitive and aggressive and um, develop their physical uh, skills that way. And uh, so, you know, the, the budgets for, um, Athletics in colleges, about 2% of athletic budgets went to, to women. Um, in high school, the idea was starting to unfold. In other states, there were girls challenging the, the absence of um, girls' interscholastic uh, sports programs. There were recreational sports programs. They would uh, organize play dates so that girls could... Uh, have an event with another neighboring school, but the notion of having a disciplined uh, set of uh, practices, coaches, and an ongoing um, whole set of uh, events was not really a whole season, wasn't there. Some high, high schools or some sports were a little ahead, some states a little different, but Uh, if you were looking at it in terms of equality, there wasn't anything equal about it in any state in the country. Um, So the sports was trying to gain traction amongst women and girls there, but there was a a struggle about how much could you really demand because the notion of it being equal really wasn't a prevalent idea whatsoever.
0: And one of the things that was, Really interesting was that for your sister, for Peg, she kind of, all of this was really self-motivated right your parents weren't like we're gonna go in there and make sure that she gets fair time and gets to play tennis with the boys like peg wrote a letter and you talk and you start the book with this letter but peg went in there and she was like i want to play i want to you know i and and she was competitive and i want to play and so can you talk a little bit about that like just how this how, like like her motivation and how this lawsuit um, really got started.
1: Yeah, I really try to point out the um, way in which this book is not about high school girls and their love life or their, uh, you know, appearance or any of those sorts of things that we so often bring up when we're talking about 17 and 18 year old young women, but It's really about their skills and their strength and their perseverance and their power. And um, these two girls were in a world that wanted to marginalize them, wanted to push them aside, thought that their interests and their passion were not important and wanted to kind of minimize it. And they weren't going to let that happen. They cared about sport. They cared about this opportunity, and they could see that boys were participating in ways that were very meaningful to them and were well supported by their community. And girls were being left out of the equation. So my sister um, did decide to, to take this up. Basically, she she tells me that it was pretty much just sort of an off-handed conversation she had with my sister and older sister and brother-in-law. And um, my brother in- law uh, is in education or what, was um, in ed- education administration and later um, and he um suggested to her that uh, the Minnesota Civil Liberties Union might be a an advocate for her. it was it was an offhanded comment, but my sister thought about it, took it seriously and decided that that was a remedy. She had tried asking her coach and uh, raising it as a a possibility, and in fact, had even been practicing with the team because the coach said, well, you might be able to practice with us when we have an odd number of people, but I can't let you compete. There's a rule from the Minnesota State High School League that forbids girls from participating on boys' teams. And if we had a player that was, uh, doing that, we would be ineligible. Um, so, you know, she thought, well, there's gotta be some other remedy and wrote that letter to the Minnesota civil liberties union. My parents did not encourage that. They did not discourage that. They let her do it. And they stood with her as she walked through that process and they supported her, by driving her to the court and talking to the people that uh, asked her, you know, asked about her and so forth, but um, it was not their case. And I think um, Tony was in a sort of similar place. Um, She very much wanted to run on the cross country team, had a good relationship with the uh, boys on the team and the coach and had been doing very well uh, just in practice. But the coach said, no, you can't participate in the meets. It would make us ineligible. And um, while her mother was the one who placed the call, um, many people have said it, it, probably it was Tony pushing her to, to do that on her behalf. Um, and these are the two people, the, Tony and Peggy, who really had to live through the whole experience. And, and I think one of the things that I think is is quite striking as I did the research is that the court case looks all very contained and very, uh, you know, to the point it's, it actually goes pretty quickly, but these girls had to live through their uh, seasons and their high school experience where they were always a little in this awkward and uncomfortable and position of being undercut um, that few few high school kids would really want to take on and I'm not sure that they knew they would have to take that on when they uh, initiated the complaint and and started the lawsuit. Um, But they they persevered and they played their little hearts out and they ran as best they could. um, And they negotiated the whole experience and and I think did other high school girls proud. Yeah,
0: and when you went – when your sister went through this, she was a senior, boys tennis um – in in 1970s as well as today happens in the spring so this she was on a time crunch um tony had another year she'd already missed the cross-country season but like this was also a matter of sort of time and importance for your sister as well to get this sort of case through um and so one of the things i thought was really interesting was that they could have gathered a number of girls and filed a class action lawsuit, but they didn't choose to do that. And I think um, that gets at some of this this importance of the time. And so can you talk a little bit about um, how this sort of, why they chose just these two girls, sort of how they sort of put this through in order to get them to be able to participate quickly?
1: Yeah, so... Um... This case was placed in the hands of a uh, pro bono attorney, Thomas Wexler. The Minnesota Civil Liberties Union decided, well, they had a complaint or um, a request from these two girls, and they saw the similarities. And so they put them both in front of them and said, we think this should be combined. Um, And so Thomas Wexler was as fairly green, had never had a complete had a federal court case or uh, and had only a small number of, of really uh, complete cases under his belt um, but he started working on this very quickly seeing the immediacy that was required it would be a mood issue if Peggy season went and finished before they had a decision so um, he sought um, assistance or had I'm not even sure he, he, the the American civil liberties union may have reached out to him directly with some assistance. Um, and as I mentioned in the book, I discovered that he heard from Ruth Gator Bader Ginsburg, who was um, on the women's rights project and was using the 14th amendment to carve out rights that would protect women's rights. Um, so while it, it's really built around protecting citizens rights, uh, in general, it, he, she was um, giving other uh, attorneys uh, support in figuring out ways to use that in, in different cases and, and um, carving out the 14th Amendment. She did not, and, and Thomas Wexler did not mention anything about Title IX at this point um, because it had not been enacted. It would be enacted in June of 1972 um, after the decision would come out. And so um, he crafted a brief really very fast. They had a, I think it's a three and a half day uh, hearing, and this was to um, determine if they would give a temporary injunction allowing these two girls to play. The case was placed before Judge Miles Lord, who is a, a man of great recognition in Minnesota, a federal court judge who um, had, has over the years, done some amazing cases, Um, the Delcon Shield, the uh, mining uh, Minnesota Mining um, uh, Taconite case. Um, And he um, looked at this case and at first was a little flip about it. And uh, I got to interview one of his daughters, and she talked about the fact that um, she spoke to him about the case because she was concerned he wasn't taking this seriously and really um, kind of wrapped his knuckles a little. She was in the hospital at the time, bearing one of his grandchildren. And um, she, she just said, you know, it would have meant so much to me to have an experience in high school athletics and I couldn't play hockey. All I could do was cheerlead. There were no other choices and that's not right. Um, And he also had a sister who spoke to him about this. So there were these undercurrents of him sort of looking at this in a new light from a new perspective uh, because he hadn't really had that view before. So he took on the case and was willing and and in his sort of unconventional way, was willing to take a federal court case and have it come on the docket and you know, be decided within less than a month. That's that's just not done. It's just very rare. So um, his um, hearing the case and putting out his decision um, kind of kept the wheels moving very fast. And then I I credit the Minnesota State High School League for their uh, very stubborn unwillingness to allow this case to uh, stand and and choosing to appeal it. And thus it became a precedent when the Eighth Circuit listened to it. Yes. And so throughout
0: the book, you go into detail about this case, which is really fascinating and with, and, and being able to read some of the back and forth in the exchange. Um, but it's interesting too, like you said, to hear some of the arguments that um, were made Uh, against these young women being able to play and I mean there's a number of them in there but were there as you were reading the court cases as you were talking with your um, sister and talking with people were there any specific or were there any arguments that were being made that you just that were more interest I don't know if interesting is the right word or you know for you than others or more like "Hmm, that's fascinating that you would think that
1: Yeah, I think the one that was most infuriating was the ongoing um, discussion about high school boys' physiological superiority. Uh, And I think as much as anything, it was the tone and the language that was used to state that high school sports has had classes for many years. You know, we know they have classes for size of schools and for weight divisions and for ages and all that sort of thing. Um, But the way that it was discussed uh, was sort of like, uh, there's no uh, reason to imagine putting girls and boys in the same space. It would be horrific that, there's no way to imagine that girls and boys could have interesting or effective competition because it's disastrous. It's uh, that sort of tone and language that um, is just so dismissive of uh, the sport experience and not the sort of thing that we would say ever about different levels of boys and their capabilities. Um, We wouldn't, diminish them as you know physiologically inferior um so that that was one of the things that would was regularly put out there as as even though there was testimony that said these girls practice and play with the boys on their teams they have some of the best teams in their sports in the state and they are effective and they are successful in their competition but still we had to keep going through the average woman and the average man and what they're capable of as though somehow that decides athletics. It just doesn't. Um, The other one that's um, very prevalent throughout is there's this way in which everyone is quite convinced from the Minnesota State High School League that if these girls play on their boys' team, it's going to undo the future of girls' athletics that it will undermine the prospects for athletics in the future girls won't want to be on girls teams anymore the the best ones will want to be on boys teams and there won't be enough girls for the other teams and that will uh, all the boys will say hey if girls can be on the boys teams we want to be on the girls teams and you know it's there's this catastrophizing of how the prospect of two girls playing against boys is going to just totally sabotage what girls' athletics can be.
0: Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Yes, I found it as I was reading, thinking about... very similar arguments being made against the Equal Rights Amendment, right? And how this is sort of this this idea that if we do this, um, yeah, like there was a lot of like, well, if the girl gets hurt, then you might have to touch her on her leg, and that's going to be inappropriate. Like, we can't have male coaches doing X, Y, and Z with female athletes, or where are they going to change? Um, all these things um, to try and stop that we continue to see as a barrier for um, equal rights, right? And I thought that was really interesting to see how that played out in the case. Yeah. So another thing that I thought that that is really interesting for me was that, so you talk about the case, but you also bring in newspaper sort of reporting on this and headlines and some of the fascinating ways in which newspaper headlines and reporters talked about this case and talked about these two young women. And so can you talk a little bit about that, too, how this was um, presented in the press?
1: Yeah, so um, as they started competing with their teams, when they won that right, uh, Peggy's initial tennis matches, uh, right away, the headlines would discuss how, what her performance was in the match. And that doesn't seem so surprising from a distance, but if you looked at the record of how tennis was covered at this point, it was very brief, always, but also um, that it would just simply say things about, you know, the overall team's record you know how they how they did in a match or who the and who they played uh, but they always would sig single her out uh for a loss so brendan or girl loses you know she chokes kind of headlines so you know it was definitely making it clear from their standpoint that she wasn't measuring up that's really not the way tennis. Um, tennis teams work. Now, if your team wins, the whole team wins, and they did win. Um, and you don't usually, and especially in high school, single out a particular athlete because they lost a match. The other thing um, uh, that y- you, I noticed as uh, that they covered that is that when she did win, that wasn't single. Single. Uh, yeah, it wasn't noted, and so um, she did have a winning record won three lost two uh, but it wouldn't be clear to anyone who was really following that um, because that wasn't stated in in a lot of articles then I'd say that uh, as the decision of the case uh, came through there was coverage about that and one of the one of the uh, results of the the Eighth Circuit's decision was that the Minnesota State High School League decided that it would um, allow girls to play on boys' teams, that that would be open to them because the court had ruled that these girls were fine and any other girl who saw that would realize they could challenge the same thing. So the Minnesota State High School League made that available. Well, we had a lot of catastrophizing by sports writers who were like, oh, this is going to ruin girls programs and it's going to humiliate boys and trying to compete with these girls and um, very, um, well, it it was that tone that somehow putting girls in the same arena with boys was just a bad idea in so many ways. Um, And then there was also the uh, way in which some of the coverage of like Tony, I noticed she was a high school athlete on the track team as well, which was a girls team. Um, they, they started an interscholastic team at her high school in her, um, as, as the case began in her, um, uh, junior year. And she ran, um, in events and there was a, a time when, um, she was competing in a, in a sort of larger meet and the sports reporter chose to talk about one of the girls she was competing against. But the reason he was telling about her is because she was the brother her brother was a very good track star. And so he told about the brother and his record. And then he explained how when this girl competed against Tony, that in fact, she started to black out and it was, you know, she fell. And and it was sort of this message that, you know, girls are really having a hard time with this athletics. And this is a reoccurring thing from sports history that sports writers tend to act like women physically aren't really up to this task.
0: Yeah, and it was interesting, too, um, along those lines, when your sister first played, so she played number three singles, and right? Um, And so they continued to take, the coaches from the other teams would take their best players and put them, instead of in the number one spot, in the number three spot, um, so that they would play. So your sister would end up playing the best players on the team, so they sort of stacked the deck um, in these ways to so that the so, so to get at some of those issues and to talk about those. So can you talk a little bit about that, too, sort of how this what you know, your sister, she wins this case and then she goes and
1: she still has to sort of really has to fight still. Right. Yes. It's my sister was very unaware of this particular thing. And in fact, um, one of the coaches, her coach uh, was not entirely aware of this until later uh, and and realized that. opponents rather than playing the order of their lineup, the way they would traditionally would find that they were having to push people around because they had people, they had boys who were really frightened of losing to a girl. And, and I think that's pretty straight up what they would say. Sometimes they knew that she was a really good player, but just the whole notion that they could lose to a girl would unleash such uh, disrespect from their teammates or other family members or their friends. And they just, they couldn't bear it. And so coaches would look to find a player who would take on Peggy. And quite often they would pull a player from a higher spot. And um, for Peggy, you know, that's neither here nor there. She knew nothing about that as she entered the match, she played who was before her. Um, and you know, tennis has struggled with that at various times, but usually the reason a coach would change their lineup is so that their team would win. So they might try to juggle so that they could create some mismatches, but it's not a practice that um, is really allowed or encouraged, but to do it, to just create one player who you want to target, that's, that's really not Heard of. You just don't do that. Um, so I think the the sort of um fear that created, and, and Peggy had matches her wins, where um in one case the uh the player was uh teased by his coach, and uh he found that really unsettling and really upsetting. He heard it from his teammates and he was kind of willing to overlook that, but when his coach Uh, sort of mocked him for losing to a girl. He, the captain of the team, chose to quit and said, I'm not playing on a team where that happens. Um, She beat one young man, and he vowed that he would never play a girl again. So the part about that is I, I find myself thinking, yeah, and if that's the attitude that high school boys have in sport, how does that carry on in their lives? How does that make them feel when they're placed in other arenas of competition that are going to involve girls and women?
0: Mm -hmm. And these two women, so uh, they were, you know, at the time they were just like you said, they just wanted to play their sports, but there is, they've also made a really big impact on sports in Minnesota, right? They were both really strong athletes, Outside of high school athletics, they both had like were competing, uh, you know, across the United States in competitions. And so what do you think, like you write about this case. So like, I'd love for you to talk about like, what, like, why do we need, I, I mean, we need it. But like, what is it about this story? Why do we, why do we need to tell this? Like, what is it, what is this legacy here? Um, and, and with these two, for these two women, but also for girls athletics, like why is this so important?
1: Yeah. I came to see the way in which um, the athletic world, so the sports world was really built with boys and men in mind. And so the institutions that have supported it and the media that's written about it has really always first and foremost thought in terms of the boys and men who are playing those games. Women came to it sort of through the back door and they had to pound really hard and they, no one ever gave them the key. And sometimes they would slam the door at them. Um, And so the structures and the institutions and the uh, media does not give them a green light, does not give them a big welcome, does not encourage them. And in some cases has really sort of taken them out at the knees at a number of times. Um, And I saw it in the book, how Tony kept having various things happen to her in her high school athletic experience, some of which you could blame someone for, but some of it is sort of an institution that didn't take athletics seriously for girls enough to create uh, a quality that, equality for her experience. So, um, you know, whether it was, that they didn't have enough coaches for their track team, or they didn't have the expertise um, in understanding how to include girls in high school when they had never been included and looking to that. Um, But also things like um, these girls came into sport uh, in places where people kept sort of saying, you don't belong here, you don't belong here. And that message is hard to overcome um, and it's and then we have a media that when girls have an accomplishment or when athletes um in that are females do uh, are successful we don't know how to highlight that we don't hold that up and so we have this sort of um uh, echo back of sports as though it's all about great men and girls and women don't get to hear the stories of their exploits because there's a whole different set of standards. Um, our, I, one of the things I was struck by is how, um, you know, there aren't all of the honors and awards and things that encouraged uh, girls to be athletes and boys know that they have a crowd and they know that they have an audience and they know that they will be honored for their their pursuits
0: yeah and these two young women didn't have should have been high school college athletes right like they had the the ability to play competitively um but there was no space for them to like get a scholarship to go to college right to get these kinds of things so they you know so they were just really doing this because they love that sport um with Yes. And there was no kind of like future accolades unless you were going to go on and become a pro athlete, which most people, regardless of gender, don't do. Right. Most people do not become pro athletes.
1: Well, and my sister Peg did play college uh, sports. She just didn't get a a scholarship. There were scholarships for female athletes at that point. But she played college tennis, uh, playing in national tournaments. Um, And in fact, what's kind of striking and she talks about the difference in experience uh, when she went to college, she had a woman coach. Um, She had teams waiting for her and um, she did not have to play as though she was representing all of girls and women that she played because she loved the game and she could play her best game for herself and her team um, and not feel as though she was bearing the weight of her gender. Um, mm-hmm. Tony didn't have a team. She went to a, uh, a, a women's school, uh, college of St. Catharines, and it did not yet have a uh, inter school or it didn't have, um, cross country. Uh, but she made arrangements negotiated a chance to at least work out and practice with the, uh, the St. John's team, their kind of partner college there and and had a, a lot of um, competition as as part of that team, not for the record in the same way. Um, but they did continue to pursue their sport for their life. And, and I think that was one of the things that I had to really take up in the book is that um, so often uh, male athletes are heralded because they become pro because they become the paid athlete that we've seen in the media. And that Avenue isn't part of the women's sport journal journey for the most part. But I felt like, wait a minute, we need to hold up the way that sport has, has been a part of their lives and how it's been important to their lives and the contributions that they've made to sport and sport has given to them because that's the larger story for women athletes, uh, especially the, the women from history. We don't have a, a, a great, um, and well documented and well heralded path into pro sports. So we've been talking
0: about this for a while and I could probably talk about women in sports <laughs> even longer. Right. Um, but, um, what are you know the book has come out so can you talk a little my final question um sort of what are you doing do you have events coming up sort of book promotion what's going on that you want people to know about
1: um uh, how they can learn a little bit more about your book <laughs> yeah so i'm very excited uh tuesday i have a book launch here in um hopkins at the hopkins high school and then um this I'm going to the Tucson festival of books and I will be on two panels presenting um, one in which I talk about uh, women as uh, female agents of change and the other where I talk about sort of different journeys in sport. So um, I'm, I'm real excited about that. I also have an opportunity to, and my sister will join me for this. um, Uh, to be a part of a sort of Title IX 50th anniversary event at um, Arizona State University. And uh, they are bringing another author in to talk about um, sport, I think in some ways uh, as a social justice issue, as well as just the uh, ramifications of Title IX in that. And so um, I'm I'm looking forward to that in, in the spring as well.
0: Well, it has been amazing talking to you. Thanks again. So Sherry Brendan, who wrote Breakpoint, Two Minnesota Athletes and The Road to Title nine. Thanks for talking with me for New Books Network. It was my pleasure. Thank
1: you.